This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. You know the adage, you can't manage what you don't measure, right? Well, when it comes to assessing the state of women at work, the gold standard of measurement has become the annual Women in the Workplace report, co-produced by Lenin.org and McKinsey and & Company. Now in its eighth year, it is the largest study of women in corporate America, and as always, full of important insights, which is why I'm so glad to welcome one of the authors to the show today. Alex Krivkovich is a senior partner at McKinsey. Alexis, welcome to Women at Work. Thanks so much for having me. We're thrilled you're here, but I want to share a little bit more so people like know who you are like in that you know resume bio way, and then we'll dive into things. So Alexis is the managing partner of McKinsey's Bay Area offices, a leader in McKinsey's banking practice, and she oversees McKinsey's fintech efforts in North America. Her work centers on driving growth and productivity at scale, and that includes customer experience redesign, product and service innovation, organizational agility, and change management. Is there anything this woman can't do? It's no wonder she has a <laughs> BA with distinction in public policy and economics from Stanford. And she got her MBA there as well, even though we'll welcome you here at the Wharton Show. Um, And at Stanford, she happened to have also been an R.J. Miller Scholar. So, Alexis, welcome. Oh, thank you. Um, That's that's quite a warm welcome. (laughs) I appreciate it. So, this, to us, the Women in the Workplace Report is just this precious thing. It's such important information. And it's not just interesting. We really care about it. it's in, you know, it's eighth year. How did you get involved in it? And what does it mean to you? You know, it absolutely warms my heart to hear you say that when you said the gold standard. I feel like maybe I should just retire and <laughs> <laughs> call it a day. Um, the the origin story for me was um, actually when I was welcoming my third daughter. Uh, I have three girls. Um, and that was eight and a half years ago because she just celebrated an eighth birthday. And I was thinking about what it meant to choose to be fully in the workplace and raising these girls. And I was thinking about the leadership teams I saw with the companies I worked with inside McKinsey, my friends and where they were. And I thought, what happened? All the women I graduated from Stanford with, our class was 50% women. Many of the women I graduated with from Stanford Business School was not quite 50, but it was close. They weren't there. They just weren't there in the same numbers. And when I was early in my career, I thought, I will look up and I will see the diversity. I just haven't arrived yet. And then I arrived and I looked around and I said, where did it go? And so for me, it was all about creating the data that allowed us to really wrestle with the question of talent and how to make all talent rise equal to opportunity, the same way we wrestle with every other question in business. So- you were in this. It's, it's interesting to imagine you looking around and not seeing it on an emotional level, on a um, practical, tactical level. What did that mean for you then? Well, the biggest worry I had was maybe I'm missing something. <laughs> like I, I was raised thinking I've got every opportunity. You go out there. You, you, you just get it. And then if you don't look around and see people like you, I think you can start to question yourself, question the rules of the game um, and really start to worry that maybe, you know, there's a secret message here that you're not picking up on on your likelihood of success. And that that was really the trigger for me was saying I'm raising these girls and I'm telling them they can do everything. But what if they show up and there's a secret message that I didn't know and I didn't get and they haven't gotten either. Right. And all these years later. You were still asking this question, and based on the data we have, it's likely they're going to keep asking these questions. Well, it's you know, it's uh, it's true. It's a it's a good news, bad news story, right? Um, the good news is we're making progress, and you can see it at every level of the pipeline. Um, since we began tracking the data rigorously eight years ago, we've seen gains at every level, and we've seen the most gains at the very top in the C-suite. 
Um, but the bad news is we're still at one in four, right. one in four women in the C-suite and one in 20 women of color. Which is frankly, one in 20 is still appalling. Before we dive into all the data and what it means, I want to back up for a little bit. How is the data gathered and, and analyzed and who participated in the report? Yeah, so we now have over 330 companies this year, 400 something companies last year who participated. These are companies that have um, workforces in the United States. So this is a corporate America focused report. Um, and they are very representative of the full suite of industries uh, that we have in this country. So uh, we we have over 12 million employees um, are covered by these companies and they share their deepest HR data with us. So they give us the inside view into their talent flows, the promotion rates, the exit rates, everything you would need to build this data set. But then in addition to that, we have the opportunity to survey over 40,000 women and men about their experiences in the workplace uh, each year and hear straight from the source, how are they experiencing the workplace environment they're in? So talk about like the size of your sample. This is why this is the gold standard. It is just amazing. And um, for those of you who are not HR data geeks like we are, HR data is precious. It is delicate. And it's a sign of um, one of your many signs of success is the trust of all these organizations who are sharing this data with you. I love that you appreciate the, <laughs> the data nerd in all of us. It's No, it's absolutely true. So what it's allowed us to do now is get deeper and deeper into talent flows. I often talk about de-averaging your data, that aggregate pictures can hide a lot of sins. And it's really true when you get inside these individual companies. We've had nearly a thousand now who've participated over the eight years, because many of them come back year after year uh, to track their view. And we've built with individual employee experiences, the largest data set that exists on what it's like to operate in the workplace today. That's amazing. Would do you mind unpacking that concept for a minute of what it means to de-aggregate the data and an example of where that would be instructive? Sure, sure. Well, one of the one of the obvious ones that uh, we note is I talked about progress in the pipeline. And if you just look at men and women, you can congratulate yourself that there has been progress and we should feel good about it. I'd argue we could be going even even faster, but still is there. But all of those gains that we have seen for women have almost exclusively been for white women. Very few of them have been for Latina, Hispanic women. Almost none of them have been incremental movement uh, for Black women in America. And so understanding even that level mm -hmm. is hugely important because, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about is the intersectional experience and any degree of intersectional that you add to who you are as a talent in the workplace adds headwinds that we can see in the data itself. And so getting underneath that and understanding that aspect is hugely important. For yeah, companies. it's essential to have a process that's going to help us derive re reliable insights and the kind of insights that we can use to really address the bigger questions we're asking. So with all this data coming in, um, I know for me, a lot of it's expected. Some of it's nice to see. Um, was there anything that surprised you in the findings? Well, our big headline this year was the great breakup which is that women are for the first time leaving their companies at much higher rates in leadership and higher rates than men. And while some of that you might expect from all talent, more movement after we uh, have come through this period of COVID, it's, it's pronounced how different it is for women. And just to give a sense of the scale of it, for every woman who is promoted into the director level, we have two women exiting out of the average company. That's a huge problem because what it means is we face a precipitous moment where we might unwind backward the progress that has been so hard fought in many organizations. And the thing I talk to uh, executives about when we're discussing this in boards is they're not leaving the workforce, they're just leaving you. <laughs> right, Meaning they are the breaking up thought, with you. <laughs> is they're breaking up with you, which means if you can create the value proposition that's compelling, where they see equal opportunity to advance, where they feel like all of their effort is equally rewarded, then they're more likely to stay. And I think that suggests that companies that are doing these things, not just talking about their commitments 
to diversity and inclusion, but backing that up with the data and the results that suggest that they're taking it seriously, that they're going to be winners in this moment. Okay, so back up a little bit. Um, That step into director role. Um, Could you describe for the listeners who may not, and by the way, you can get the report online. Um, It's quite readable. The graphics in it really help make this complex information really accessible. Um, It's worth the the time and energy. Um, Talk about what are the different stages of the pipeline that you're addressing? Yeah, so we think about, um, we break the pipeline down into six levels, starting at um, the entry level and ending in the C-suite, which are the positions that report uh, to the CEO. And we look at the the movements at each of those levels. There's the first step up to manager. There's then two levels we think of as this sort of critical middle manager um, position, sort of senior manager and then into director. And then we have the most senior levels of leadership. And this director point, I hone in on it because it's really the moment when a lot of people are are reaching the inflection of going from the you know, the body of the organization into the leadership zone. So they increasingly have control over multiple teams, over budgets, in some cases over policy and decision-making. And importantly, that's the point where most early talent tends to look up and say, that's leadership. And that's an example of a role model of who I could be or who I should be. So leaving at that moment creates several problems. So one is, I'm guessing, all this energy has been put in recruiting, training, developing. That's a critical moment because that's where you are grooming your next leadership team and this talent's leaving. It's a huge loss for the organizations. And for it's, the, it's a huge loss. And Absolutely. then what about for the people who stay behind? Like you said, who are they seeing when they look up? Well, and that was one of the things I found, you asked what's surprising, really interesting in this year's finding is that we looked at the experience for women under 30. So early career women, they are more ambitious than they were pre-COVID. And two thirds of them say, I'd consider leaving my, my current employer if I look up and I don't see examples of the diverse talent in leadership like I want to be. Right Two thirds. Two thirds. And and by the way, a significant number of young men say the very same thing. So this is not just a woman's story. This is a talent story. We're increasingly seeing a values shift, which is a wonderful thing towards putting a premium on diversity, but not just diversity in talk, diversity in outcomes. Absolutely. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zaron. My guest today is Alexis Krivkovich. She's one of the authors of the 2022 Women in the Workplace Report, which is co-produced by McKinsey and Company with LeanIn.org. So you said an interesting word before, ambition. Talk to me about, um, A, how you've assessed the ambition of um, the people who participate in the survey and these people in the workforce. And then what is it that's what dimensions does it have that aren't being fulfilled that's making them leave? Yeah, well, one of the things that frustrates me the most about this idea of ambition is how much we get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember in my career asking, why don't I see more women at the top and being told mostly by men who did not have the shared experience? Uh, oh, they, they just don't want it. If they wanted it, they could have it, but they don't want it. You know, they want other things. They want a variety of things, uh, but they don't want it. And I thought, well, that can't be true because it's garbage. I know all these women who want it. <laughs> right. Um, and they're still not here. Uh, and my experience doesn't feel precisely the same as the men around me. And so there's got to be more to this equation. And besides, is that a data driven answer or not? And so honestly, what we did was we we you know, struck out to try and answer that question in a data-driven way. And one of the things we do is every year we ask men and women about their level of ambition. And what we see is that women are just as ambitious as men when it comes to promotion. They want it just as much. And in fact, women of color, and in particular, Black and Hispanic and Latina women, are the most ambitious of all. Uh, talent out there in the workforce. But when you ask, do you want the top job? Yeah. Women's level of interest drops 
And when we dig into it, what they describe is the top job as it's defined right now in the conditions that created it in a workforce that had very little diversity and still only has one in four women in leadership is not nearly as appealing to me because okay. it doesn't reflect the breadth of leadership styles, of expectations. Um, and frankly, you know, the the balance of what I think I bring and I need to be a successful senior leader. Okay, this is really interesting, and I need to explore it a little bit to make sure I'm putting all the pieces together. So um, even for our most ambitious women, women of color, black women who are really serious about advancing, will they too look at that role and say, I don't want that role because it's so hard to be successful and have a good experience in that role? Like, where are they on that? Yeah, they, um, what we see in, you know, in the broad data is they want it, they still have higher ambition, so they want it more, the top jobs, but still that there's a disconnect between what men will describe and even the most ambitious category, which is our, uh, we see in the data, black women will describe about how much they want it. And what they talk about is, um, is really the constraints around it and the limitations to how we've defined those roles to date and the lack of examples of people who've succeeded in getting there um, on their own. They effectively look at it and say, I just, I just don't even believe you when you tell me I have equal opportunity because everything they experience and everything we track in the data shows that there are material ways in which they don't have the same pathway to get there. So is the result of that that they are not trying or they're trying in other organizations? And this is the hardest part for us to answer because what we get to survey are people inside their companies, <laughs> right. not the people who've left. But That I can is tell always you, the hard part. <laughs> I know, but what I can tell you is um, two things. First, when we ask, are you thinking about leaving? And if so, what are you thinking about doing? Our most ambitious women also describe the highest likelihood of thinking about striking out on their own and doing something entrepreneurial. Okay. And I would believe it uh, because you see such inequity in the experience they're having that a lot of them say, you know what, this is not an even playing field. I'm going to go try and create one for myself. But the second thing I'd say is, you know, this great breakup moment, I think is also a moment where we see women leaders voting with their feet and saying there are a lot of companies out there and there are companies that are doing a better job. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I'm not in one of them, I'm going to use my positional power, my talent to go seek out those other places where I have a better shot. So you got really interesting data, though, about the specific things these women are experiencing that are making them leave. Can you share some of that with us? Sure. So. You know, what we see is uh, a few different factors that make a really big difference in the experience for women. So the first is the day-to-day -day environment does not feel the same for women as it does for men, despite our efforts and the attempts many companies have made to focus on inclusion and the culture they're creating. And let me describe some examples. We talk about this like as microaggressions in the sense that they're small kind of fractional moments often unintended, but they happen with much higher uh, intensity for women than men, and in particular for women of color, um, women with disabilities, and LGBTQ+. And so this is things like having your judgment questioned, mm -hmm. um, being mistaken for someone more junior, um, having other people comment on your appearance or criticizing you for your demeanor, and feeling like you've been excluded or you can't even disagree with your coworkers. These are the types of experiences that women describe with high frequency in ways that their male peers typically don't. And it means they're literally their day-to-day -day feels and looks different in the workplace. That's one of the factors that we hear about quite frequently. Um, and then the second one is that they just don't receive the same level of support mm -hmm. from managers from sponsors in their organizations. And the great irony of that is we can see that when they are senior leaders, women give more of that support 
They are the managers who ask about your workload and your health and your well-being. They are the managers who disproportionately do sponsorship uh, and allyship in their organizations. But when they're on the receiving end, they don't get nearly the same amount of that attention. So they're not getting the attention and they're experiencing these constant microaggressions, which I think Michelle Obama had famously described as, you know, you're being tortured by a thousand paper cuts. Um, <laughs> But that, it, but it's constant and it's persistent and it adds up and um, it adds up to a level. It can add up to a level of trauma that's each one is cruel, but even when unintended, um, it has a, a a deep impact on the people who experience it. So if you couple that with the lack of advocacy and attention to well-being, that's a potent double whammy. I believe. It is. It is. And, you know, and the experience is harder uh, if you are an only, meaning if you're an individual who shows up as the only of your race, of your gender, um, of your sexual orientation in the workplace. And you're more likely to be an only if you're a more senior woman, if you're a woman of color, uh, if you're LGBTQ, you're often likely to be a double only. And these experiences uh, go up dramatically in that environment. And I would say it is... Um, what, what I hear from, from women in these environments when they're experiencing uh, microaggressions at a high degree is it is exhausting and undermining at mm -hmm. the same time because it's exhausting because you constantly have to be your own advocate. And that's where allyship and broader awareness can be so helpful. Um, and it's undermining because the whole idea of these situations, even if unintended, is people are like, really? You? Oh, oh, okay. You're going to be, how'd you get here? Right. And you start to go, I don't know. How did I get here? <laughs> right. So it, it cuts at your core. And it's also a kind of foolish waste of time because if you're in the meeting and you have to demonstrate, no, I am senior enough. And yes, I did my homework. You're wasting a lot of valuable time where you could just be getting the work done. So well said. Um, so when, as these senior women leave, um, it's clear that then they're not there to mentor junior women and the junior women don't have the role models that they can aspire to be and become and be reassured that there's a path forward. To what degree will the junior women see this as opportunity for them to rise in the ranks or will it make them a flight risk, too? I think the greatest worry is that it'll it'll make them a flight risk. Um, you know, I, I do not subscribe to this queen bee syndrome idea that what's keeping women from advancing is other women uh, <laughs> balking them out. I mean, I would be like, oh my gosh, let's get, right. let's get us all together. And I, you know, I, I think that is a fallacy that has been created, you know, to fulfill uh, an easy uh, and sort of absurd explanation to a much deeper rooted challenge. And we see this in our, in our data, right? I talked about how two thirds of women under 30 say they want to see role models and examples uh, in more senior leadership of the diversity that they bring. But, you know, they also care disproportionately, even more so than women uh, who are further into leadership about the DE&I commitments of mm -hmm. their companies. It's core uh, to who about, they are. It's not something that they learned later in life. Absolutely. And I think one of the great things we've done over this past decade is we've, um, you know, we've sort of opened everyone up to the to the idea that this is not just important, but we have to we have to look at the hard numbers and we have to hold up the mirror about how well we're doing, um, notwithstanding all of our talk on the topic. And w women, particularly young women, but also young men are holding um, holding us to that bar. And I think that's really exciting because what it suggests to me is that we're going to be uncompromising and wanting to see progress. So that's interesting that you're mentioning that the men share this sentiment, too. Um, were they part of this data gathering, or is that informed by other research? No. So one of the things that makes this data set so powerful is that when we survey those 40,000-plus employees, um, it's all, all employees in all types of industries at all levels, um, both genders uh, as well as uh, gender nonconforming. So we get a, a truly representative data set of talent out there in the workplace to work with. Yeah. So when you're helping us, when you're giving us these comparisons, I love that it's all coming from the data and it's so poignant. It's also encouraging to see that these junior men um, have a different orientation. 
Um, is there any other data that you're seeing where they're helping to create a new paradigm early on? Well, I, I find the commitment that we see in young talent overall around the importance of diversity really encouraging. I also uh, see shifts in their expectations about um, young men and women about flexibility in mm-hmm. the workplace, which is a big topic we should explore. We will. Uh, and that's important because this really isn't just a woman's issue. Right. Um, and there's shifting expectations that we see around things like um, paid caregiver leave, where, you know, the, the disconnect we used to see in the data was that both in many companies, if you were fortunate, both men and women were offered some amount of paid parental leave, but women took that paid parental leave at dramatically higher rates than their male peers. And now we're starting to see some amount of equalizing of that. And that's important for a variety of reasons. Yeah, especially because those women were often penalized for taking it. Um, Absolutely. And the culture did not approve it. And when the men take it, when everyone takes it, it normalizes it and it makes it feel important to do, not a punishable thing to do. Um, We need to take a short break, but don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Alexis Krivkovich. And we're going to be talking about this year's Women in the Workplace report. We'll be talking about women at the beginning of the pipeline and all the things we learned about then. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we're going to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest this hour is Alexis Krivkovich. She's a senior partner at McKinsey & Company and co-author of the annual Women in the Workplace Report, produced by both McKinsey and LeanIn.org. Welcome back, Alexis. Great to be with you. So in our first half hour, we were talking about, you know, this big news of these senior women who are really breaking up with their companies because they can't fulfill their ambitions and get where they're going. And they're going other places. But we've long had another problem that the report has made clear to all of us and doesn't seem to be changing. And that's the broken rung. Could you talk to us about what the broken rung is and why it's such a problem? Absolutely. So this was one of the most surprising findings to me over the eight years. And it's the fact that the most inequitable promotion is the very first one Mm -hmm. from an individual contributor up into first level manager. And we call that the broken rung because in organizations who face this and the vast majority do, if you have that dynamic playing out, you can never recover the ground of regaining the diverse talent that you need. And so to put the dimensions of that in context for every 100 men who move forward in an organization, 87 women do, and only 84 women of color. And that feels like small-ish numbers, but this is over the largest populations of talent that we have. And that disconnect alone sets up for most companies a pathway they can't they can't right. solve. Especially because one of the things that the report has proven year after year is that it's not just a talent pipeline. It's a leaky pipeline. And there is a leak at each of those six stages of career that you talked about before. So if just from the first one, you're now losing 16, 17 percent of your talent, what's going to happen as it keeps leaking out? That's how we wind up with only where you, we started. You know, more women are graduating from college. Equal numbers are being hired. So already we got a little leak there, a little leak. But then at the high end, if one in four CEOs are women and one in 20 are black women, like that math happened through those holes in the pipeline, right? Yeah, absolutely. You only have a couple of ways you can get talent moving around, <laughs> right? You can promote it up through, uh, you can hire it from outside, and you can avoid losing it. Um, out through the the leaky pipe, as you said, and companies typically face all three of those problems. But when you've got this broken rung right at the start, because it's your whole future uh, leadership pool that you're going to draw from, you you set up a situation that there's no amount of external talent you'll be able to hire in that will replace that amount of the loss. And that's describing its impact to the organization. What does this mean for these women's salaries, um, short and long term? 
Yeah. It, it, well, that's precisely what happens is what you set up is a slow rolling career, right? So at the very first move, you already, it's not that you won't never get there, but it's taking you longer to get that first leap, which means you want to go get the next opportunity. You don't have as much experience, but we now expect if you're going to have the chance to go outside or inside to promote up, that you have a certain number of years of experience. Let's not even get into whether or not number of years is right. statistically <laughs> correlated with more successful people, or it's just been written down by the people who had extra years in certain roles. So you end up both with a pacing that in some cases is just too slow to even get you into the C-suite and senior leadership, but also then when you face these tough choices around things like covering the demands at home, if you're going to have family or elder care responsibilities, um, you you start to look uneven and women start to look like they're further behind. So when we have to make difficult choices, like so many people did during COVID when infrastructure fell away, lo and behold, women look like the natural choice. Right. And the impact of this is not just that these companies lose this talent and the diversity and the women are not in leadership roles, but to these women themselves, you're not getting promoted, you're not making more money. That impacts your retirement. It impacts your social security. It impacts your lifetime earnings. The ripple effect is huge. It's a big problem. So what's causing the problem? What are the things that are happening that women are experiencing? Um, they enter these companies. They're well-educated. They've been recruited. They're prepared. What's blocking them? Yeah. Well, there are a number of things that we see in the data that suggest where the problems lie. So one of the issues is we know that women and men have different networks mm -hmm. naturally. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, they tend to be like for like. So men will describe a network that's disproportionately full of men and women will des describe a network professionally that's disproportionately full of women. At the very outset of your career, that may not matter quite as much, but we just talked about a C-suite where three out of every four leaders is a man. So one of those networks becomes much more powerful for you over time in terms of mentorship, sponsorship, and frankly, just visibility. So that's one of the issues that we clearly see. Another one is that women don't get the same level of coaching and support. And we talked about this a little bit before, but by every measure we look at, when we ask the question about how you receive support inside your organization, things like your manager checks in on your well-being, um, you have the sponsorship and support that you're looking for, particularly women of color, describe not receiving that type of support in their organization. And this is really important because this is where those micro moments where the coaching, uh, the coaching really happens. So I, you made a, uh, there's a way that you use the terms mentorship, sponsorship, and coaching. And I'm, I'm finding meaning in that that I really appreciate. And so I'd like to explore it a little bit with you. Um, and that you anchored what you described coming from the organization as coaching and what you described coming from personal networks as mentoring. Can you talk to me about why you framed it that way? Yeah, I think this is one of the fascinating things. In a lot of companies, we I see that we confuse, and even my, myself <laughs> at times, we confuse um, and conflate community from, uh, from coaching, coaching, uh, uh, mentorship, sponsorship, we use all these words like they're sort of a salad and they're actually quite different when they're, when they're done right. And you need to know which one are you looking for? Which one are you giving? Which one are you receiving in order to, to frankly do a, a good job of it on all sides of that relationship? So in my mind, mentorship is free advice. It hopefully good advice, hopefully tailored advice, from someone who invests to get to know you and you invest to get to know, but you could give out as much mentorship as you had hours in the day to have mm -hmm. cups of coffee with people. Um, sponsorship is using positional power to help someone else advance. When people tell me I sponsor 20 people, I think, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, you don't know you? the definition right. of sponsorship. <laughs> you literally cannot do it in an infinite scale, because it would suggest you have sort of infinite power to offer. And the time it takes to do sponsorship well is huge. I mean, it's a real, it's an enduring commitment. You're helping someone 
um, move into position or find opportunities they might not have on their own, open up doors, use your network to give them access, throw light and visibility on them. Um, and so in a lot of organizations, we we confuse these, these elements and these terms. And so I think of mentorship as a lot more like the the people around you who, who can help you kind of think through things, and but there's not necessarily a really enduring commitment or even their ability to help you execute on those ideas. Um, coaching should really be like someone's giving you real suggestion and input on how to improve in advance. And sponsorship is I'm going to take it all the way to using my power of position and opportunity to help you move to. I love those distinctions. I also think of mentorship when people are looking for mentors. And when we talk about our mentors in retrospect, they're not the people assigned to us to coach us. They, It's almost like finding true love. Like it's the byproduct of relationship. Uh, it does deepen relationship. But there's a mutual understanding and interest in each other that makes those relationships, that kind of dialogue, fruitful. That it doesn't often happen when you're assigned a coach. It's, it... Yeah, it's such a it's such a great point and distinction. But I'll, I'll hit on one of the things you were saying there about finding true love, because what we see in the data is we do treat these things too much like a love match. Like it has to be organic. We have to just find each other's and our eyes lock and we just know you will mentor me. I will be your mentor. <laughs> right. And the birds right? sing and the sun comes right. out. Right. The birds will sit, like roll the credits and we, you know, skip off into the sunset happy. Uh, the challenge is what that does is it leaves you in a situation where too often we will devolve to the like for like. Meaning I talk to a lot of leaders who say, I just feel like given my life experience, I am going to be most helpful mentoring or sponsoring, you know, someone who's had an experience like me, what would I know to tell a young Asian woman about rising in the workplace if I am an older white man? And my response is, you need to learn how to do this <laughs> because you are a leader in right. the organization. So you are the leader we are looking for because you're sitting in the seat. And if you don't figure out how to effectively throw that sponsorship, that mentorship, that support equally across all your talent, you will perpetuate this problem we see on the other side, which is an experience where women, especially women of color who are least represented in senior leadership, look around and say, I don't have anyone doing this for me. So that reinforces the importance of creating inclusion and belonging in a diverse environment so that you can bridge that difference to get to those meaningful relationships. Absolutely. And I think recognizing that you can rise successfully into a senior leadership role and still have things to learn. <laughs> and some of those things to learn are, you know, about the experiences that are very different from yours. I mean, some of the most interesting conversations I've had over the years have been where I asked someone who has a very different life history than me, Tell me about how you grew up. Tell me what it was like to be first generation to go to college. Tell me about your community and how you stay connected. What does it feel like when you walk into a room and you're the only Asian woman there, right? And if we ask those questions, we don't have to have all the answers. We have to have the humility and the inquisitive desire to figure out yeah, the curiosity. Um, what makes it different. And then and then we're in a position to help for when we say like finds like it's not just that the senior leader is looking for people like them. But as junior staff, um, we will seek mentorship from people like us. How much of that is based on our vulnerability or is that a byproduct of the culture? Yeah, it's you know, it's so hard um, to know the answer to that one. But my encouragement always and I and I try and remember this for my self as well, uh, is, you know, you, you do need to think about building your personal board of directors the same way you'd build out any other part of your resume or your skill set. And so I always encourage people to start with what are the, what are the aspects you think would be helpful to you in a career? The person who will just give you unfiltered, hard hitting feedback, the person who will sit with you and commiserate about um, you know, the, 
the dynamics that are happening in the workplace. Someone who understands the politics of relationship who can advise you. Someone in a field you want to be in, but you're not today, who's not your direct supervisor. Someone inside your organization who can see above you where the opportunity sits. Like you kind of need a map of the pieces that are going to be helpful to you. And you don't have to have folks sitting in each of those seats yet, but it's a really powerful exercise to say, what would it look like to start building towards that? And I think we we often think of the network aspect as being kind of the unmanaged outcome of all of our interactions. Yeah. And I think in the best situations, you actually take control of that. I love it. And in it is this notion of play the long game. Like, you don't have to necessarily decide now what you're going to do 25 years from now. But if you have a sense of a direction that you want to go and a way that you want to grow, have the faith in yourself that you're going to get there, but start exploring relationships and connections that can help inform that process now. Don't yes. just expect to stumble into it like finding true love. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Alexis Krivkovich. She's a partner at McKinsey & Company and one of the authors of the 2022 Women in the Workplace Report, co-sponsored by McKinsey and LeanIn.org. So, Alexis, talking about these junior women who are coming in and they're not getting promoted, um, curious about the role of... Um, the promotion and evaluation process. How much of that is part of the problem and where in particular should we be paying attention? Right. Well, when we first discovered this broken rung, the phenomenon of uh, at the first promotion, the most imbalance between men and women advancing, it, it was a real head scratcher to me because it felt like it should be the easiest spot to have equal talent rise because you're early in your career you know, the, the skill level and the, you know, the portfolio of things you have to have figured out uh, is typically at a simpler level. You're often not yet facing um, the combination of family, uh, you know, politics shouldn't matter as much because you don't need this advanced network to get to the first manager position. So it really kind of confused me. And then we started talking with companies about what they do and what they talked about was these really rigorous processes they put in place at the very top now. Oh, I have diversity slates. I have special criteria. I do all these, you know, all these different things. But then when they described, you know, early ranks in organizations, it was a lot looser and it's a lot looser because these are like laws of large numbers. You're moving a lot of people and you just kind of let the process work and you trusted that the process that exists is the process that will get us good outcomes. And what we know from the data and the years of studying this is that there's just bias baked into that process. And in many cases, that process needs a rigorous scrub. So let me give you one example. 98% of companies will say they have um, specific objective criteria they use to evaluate performance. Only 43% of employees will see they observe specific objective criteria being used to evaluate performance. Now, that may just be a quality of execution issue, but that is a huge gap yeah. <laughs> between what we think is happening and what employees say is happening day to day. And in a lot of promotion processes, evaluation processes, what we see is that there are all sorts of things that we're not intending that are happening inside that process today. How much of it, if any, is that ju it's junior people who are managing more junior people, whereas the more senior executives, they've learned from their experiences, they've had training, they have outside influences, so they may be more effective managers, but ironically, of people that are more likely to be able to facilitate their own success. I, absolutely. I mean, you think about if you're a first-level manager and you're being asked to evaluate a team for the first time, the best data you have is your own experience. Well, I did it this way and that worked because I got here. Now, first of all, you may not be fully calibrated <laughs> on <Right>. your performance, <laughs> but even if you are, you're a data point of one and you did it one particular way. That doesn't mean it's the only way to do the job, right. only way to succeed. And so a lot of what we see, even when we go in and look at um, job descriptions for opportunities is, you know, companies have embedded in their job descriptions criteria that they think matters that in fact statistically has very little to do 
with success over time. And the reason that's a problem is a lot of times that criteria has gender skews baked into it, right? If you expect a certain number of years of experience, but women disproportionately don't get promoted at the same rate in advance, you might miss out. If you expect, give you an example, you know, if you expect uh, certain awards, like um, business schools have, you know, their academic awards, and those rewards are struggling with meaningful imbalance in the representation, then you will disproportionately skew towards certain talents. So there are all these ways and examples of how we need to go back and like really kick the tires yep. on those. It sounds to me like I'm going to put out a call to action. I think the managers of the most junior people, we need to invest in them and we need to invest in their training and processes or I don't know how this is going to get fixed. But there's another question that I have for you. It's also clearly um, plaguing women throughout the workplace. There was a great book that just came out on this called The No Club. I want to talk about the impact of non-promotable tasks. To what degree is this a factor in, one, this broken rung and also the ascent to leadership? Such an important topic, right? Because what we see is that women are twice as likely to be spending substantial time on DE&I work. They're far more likely to be spending time um, engaging in those manager tasks we were talking about on checking in on employees, coaching employees, um, understanding their well-being, uh, and the like. They're twice as likely to be doing the sponsorship, especially of diverse talent in all forms, um, but just in general. And yet, while the vast majority of companies will say all of those activities are really important, in fact, over 80% will say we really value that, only about 25% actually put that in their performance review. Okay, so that right there, 80% value it, but only 25% are getting Reward the data it. on it and rewarding it. Bingo. That, that's so its own gap. Right there, right? And I talk to women leaders about this and they say, yeah, but what am I going to do? Say no to every woman who reminds me of myself coming up through the organization, every person, every next generation manager or leader who I want to show up in the best way possible to help all talent do well. No, of course, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to do it. But this is that ROI question. Like, what is the return on investment for all of that time? And in most organizations, even though those types of behaviors are correlated with happier employees who are more likely to stay and want to advance, at they they haven't found the way um, and they haven't found the courage, I'd argue, to reward it the way it deserves. Yeah. Um, and we were lucky enough. We had a, um, some guests on recently who had done a lot of research on this. Their book's The No Club. And it reinforces the critical importance of, one, organizations building that into the evaluation and um, reward process. And also the in, when you're in an environment when that's not an option that's going to rescue you right now is to really think deeply and strategically so you don't wind up either um, penalized and not given promotion because you haven't produced in the things that matter to the organization or that you're not overextended and really overworked because you're doing everything to make everybody happy because that's not sustainable. Which brings me to the next question. Um to what degree is flexibility, well-being at work, a factor in that first broken rung? Right. So this has one of, been one of the most fascinating uh, pieces over the past couple of years. Uh, Pre-COVID, the number one thing women described that they felt would help them further advance in the workplace was flexibility, greater flexibility. And that can take a lot of different forms, but the whole spirit of it was, I need more <laughs> <laughs> um, flexibility around these jobs, uh, how you ask me to show up, hold me accountable for the results, but understand that there are different ways uh, to deliver them. Then we hit this period of COVID where we were forced into the greatest experiment on remote work um, and in some forms of flexibility <laughs> that we ever could have imagined, but it was coupled with the you know dissolving of a tremendous amount of the infrastructure, childcare, elder care, you know, home support that has really enabled women to fully uh, enter and engage in the workforce over the past forty years, and perhaps no surprise, women 
held all that extra baggage through COVID. So it was like, great, give me flexibility, except not this version, because <laughs> right. this version is killing me. <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm now I'm doing my job, but I'm also the principal and I'm a kindergarten teacher and I'm, you know, I'm cleaning, you know, cleaning bathrooms in a short order cook and do, you know, it was just like, this is impossible. And they were disproportionately holding it. So what does the future hold now? You know, the reality is no one wants to go back to precisely what we had before. And that's true for women and men. And I, I firmly believe we will enter into something that looks quite different. 82% of employees want flexible work options. So this is not just a woman thing. Um, 82% of employees, but nine out of 10 women say, if that's not going to be part of the future model, I might go somewhere where it is. Look, I also, going back to um, the way we were talking before about the distinctions between mentorship and coaching and support, um, I think there's another distinction that needs to be made. We went into remote and hybrid work as a necessity in a time of enormous crisis. That was not flexibility. Like that word shouldn't even be applied there because it wasn't flexible. It was actually mandated while juggle. There was no choice. It was just deal with it. And this is how we're doing it. But now we get to insert choice and flexibility into the process now that we're no longer in a healthcare crisis. And so then the question becomes, what do these women really and men, too, but what do we need from the organizations to make that flexibility serve to retain talent? Yeah, well, what's fascinating is I think we will see the the pressure from all talent um, to experiment and continue to do something different in the future. So almost half of all employees say that flexibility and the work model of their company is going to factor into their decision about where they want to be um, and the work they want to do. And the majority of HR leaders are, you know, they're awake to that, right? They're saying, we get it. <laughs> we're, we know we're going to something different in the future than the past. I think one aspect that's really important to recognize is flexibility is, you kind of hit on it. It is um, the hours of the day, the days I commute in, you know, the, the nature of how I get the job done still let me deliver the same results, but it can mean a few different things. And so I think for a lot of companies, it's a great moment of experimentation to say, how do we get this right where we get everything on productivity we need, but we also meet the demands of of women and men for what they're expecting in the future? Alexis, it's we have to stop, but at least that's a good place to stop. So if people want to find more, where can they find you? Where can they find the report? You can find the report at womeninTheWorkplace.com, and it has both this year's 2022 findings, but each of the past eight years as well. Fantastic. Alexa, thank you so much for joining us and for the great work you're doing. Thank you. This has been really wonderful. And thank you all for joining us. If you have a question, uh, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just follow us on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and me on LinkedIn. Today, I have a profound thank you. Today is our last day with Patty Hall as our producer, my beloved producer, taught me everything I know and has helped us bring you what we hope is really meaningful content over the last seven to eight years. Uh, big thanks as well to Kara Pogue and, of course, to Dion Simpkins and our sound engineer. I'm Laura Zarrow. And you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody. And you hang in there. Go get what you need. Take care. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.com dot upenn.edu.